Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. Leap forward into 2020. Leap forward for spiritual growth. A brand new start. A new beginning with God. New year, new you. New year. New view. The Sermon on the Mount. A self-examination checklist for 2020. Beginning with new power. Declaring peace after a year at war. Three secrets to staying Christian in 2020. Five keys to making marriage last. Giving relationships another chance in a new decade. 2020. I'm a Christian. Now what do I do? Those are all real sermon titles. Or my personal favorite, which isn't real. Fresh Start 2020. Unless you are loaded with debt, regret, and guilt. Oh, great, Wade. That sounds more like a sermon that you would give. (laughs) Well, today's a sensitive day, actually. Uh, Sensitive because I'm being insensitive. And so I would ask for a little bit of grace, a little bit of latitude. And then if there's an area where I need to go back and be corrected, I would invite you to that gently. Or as gently as I do this morning. None of those are our sermon for this new year. In fact, today's a very weird day. Today is Reformation Sunday, except for it isn't. Right? That was at the end of October, and today is a new year. It's a new sort of whatever we're doing here. Why would we do Reformation Sunday? Because the topic of Reformation, of our Reformation sermon for this year that got pushed back is very important, as we will go on to see. None of those sermons or sermon titles am I mocking the hard and diligent work that was put into them. I'm not even claiming that any of these things are bad or inherently unhelpful. But, hear me closely, none of those things are necessarily Christian either. And this is where trouble starts to bubble up. Last year in our Reformation sermon, we looked at the only two words spoken by God to you. The word of law and the word of gospel. These two words always go together. You cannot ignore either of them. One of them guides you and eventually condemns you. Or as the Apostle Paul said, the law was given to increase sin. Which is an interesting comment. And then the other word is the person and work of Jesus that saves you from your condemnation. The law says do, and the Gospel says done. 
The law says do this and it is never finished. The gospel says it's already done for you in Christ. The sermon titles above provide for us an endless list of law. An endless project that you can busy yourself with. Now, don't completely misunderstand. Is it good to improve yourself? Is it good to improve your relationships, your marriage? Is it good to take God's law and apply it to your life? And to let God's word change you? Yes. And yet, no matter what, that will eventually lead to your condemnation. No matter how secure you feel as though you are in your doing of good things. This year, I want to look at a different dichotomy. That is, two things that are plainly different from one another. And this dichotomy was discovered in the text of Scripture and helps us to better understand our justification or our being made right by Christ Jesus during the time of the Reformation. Martin Luther, the old dead guy that started the Reformation claimed that justification, that is our being made right in God's eyes, is the doctrine, the belief, the truth on which the church stands or falls. Now, we do know that the church never truly falls away. There is always the gospel being preached somewhere, somehow, and yet it's easy to go off trail, and it's easy to get lost in lists of law. It was during this time, this time of Reformation, that he said, according to Scripture alone, we are saved by Christ alone, because of grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And along with that saying, Christ alone, and saying that Christ alone saves, he also took from the Bible, that the cross alone is our theology, which is a bold statement. It is a bold statement that otherwise said would sound like this, that the only, it is only through Christ's cross that we can properly think of or speak about God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 25, we read this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, just before this, Paul is um, coming to the church in Corinth and he's saying to them, Look, I know there's all these wonderful speakers around you. All these wise people that have so many good, deep, beautiful things to say. But beware, these deep, beautiful things that they are saying can, if you're not careful, empty the cross of its power. It'll take Jesus and put him in the back seat. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
Hear what Paul said there. He didn't say, to some people it sounds like folly. He said, to those that are dying, it is folly. They can't comprehend how someone suffering and dying for them would make any difference in their life whatsoever. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, And folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, Christian, you are a theologian. Now, you've probably heard that before, and oftentimes it's been said, you're either a good theologian or a bad theologian. That's not untrue. Except for if we simply say that you are a theologian, you're either good or bad, it gives no definition to that terminology. And anyone can come to you and say, see, you're a bad theologian. Or see, I am a good theologian. In truth, all people everywhere are theologians. What does it mean to be a theologian? It means that we have Thoughts and words of and about God. So even an atheist is walking around the world denying God, or Christians who practically deny God, walk around and they have words to share about Him. Thoughts, maybe that they keep to themselves. So how do we decide, how do we close that interpretation of a good or bad theologian? Instead, from the text that we just read, good theology is centered on the cross of Christ. And a bad theologian, as it were, looks for signs and wonders and wisdom from the world all around them. A bad theologian is always aiming for glory, and more specifically, for their own glory. So are you a good theologian or a bad one? Well, asking myself that question too, I'll answer for all of us. We're probably both, aren't we? (laughs) And we inherited it, honestly, from our first father, Adam. What did he attempt to do? He attempted to be God in God's place. And all the time we place ourselves at the center and make sure that the world around us and as many people's lives as is humanly possible, can revolve around us. But we are told by John the Revelator, the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 13, 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Or maybe Peter says it a little bit more clearly for us. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, 
speaking now to both Jews and Greeks, right? We've talked about this so many times. You're nauseous about it, okay? Um, that the Jews are so heavily leaning on their ancestors and the Greeks are so heavily leaning on their ancestors that we both look around and we say, well, clearly that person is wrong. But Peter reminds us, knowing that we were ransomed from the futile ways that we inherited from all of our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. What do we hear happening here? We see the plan that Christ would be your substitute and your salvation taking place at the creation of the world. The cross is not only the way that we should start off our day or finish our day or maybe we should reference it every once in a while. It is at the beginning, as it were. Or in Luke chapter 24 which we know this well. And he said to them, a stranger, otherwise known as Jesus, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of Scripture goes through the cross. And I don't mean that it goes through and on to another level. Okay? The cross is like the pair of glasses that we wear on our head and must view all of Scripture through. All of your life, all of your neighbor's life, all of your thoughts and words, whether you know it or not, have to be seen through the cross of Christ. And so this morning, we're talking about the Christian life. Is it one of cross or one of glory? I told you I was going to be offensive this morning, so here we go. Let's get started. Some of you, this might elicit a visceral reaction. Um, I was pouring back through history books this week because I thought, where's the best place that I can start to convict each of us, including myself, of where we become theologians of glory than in the past? You know, we're a little bit removed from it, so let's start there. Here, we have a drought happening in South Africa. Well, that's familiar to us. And this young man here is being tied to a tree, at which point he will be cut and beat He will not die, but he will suffer. And he will suffer because in his suffering, the God of rain will answer his call. Now, for some of us very westernized people in this room, we say to ourselves, well, that is clearly godless. And yet, is this not a theology of glory that we are so prone to ourselves? I think back to Adam and Eve and Adam standing there and Eve takes the fruit and she eats of the fruit and she gives it to Adam and Adam eats of the fruit and God comes and says, what's going on? 
And what does Adam say? It wasn't me. It was her. Adam inherently knows that blood is going to be shed for what just happened. And he's saying, don't take me. Take the one beautiful thing that you've given me and sacrifice it, God. Take it for yourself. Cain, if his herbal sacrifices aren't good enough, he's going to sacrifice his brother. And he's going to say, God, is that good enough for you now? Each and every one of us like to think as theologians of glory. We like to live lives of sacrifice. One of the books I was pouring through was this 1879 Traveler's Guide to Cape Town. It's a beauty, actually. It's a real beauty. Um, Great pictures, great articles, some hilarious articles. Um, And yet, here's one of the articles that I pulled out. If you can't read it, that's fine. I'm going to read it for you. Seventh-day Adventist Church. The work of the Seventh-day Adventists in the country began about ten years ago. A few individuals becoming dissatisfied with their Christian experience. (laughs) Oh, we can all relate to that, can't we? Met together for a time to study the Bible and to search for further light. They soon became convinced that to live up to the teachings of the Bible, they must turn to the observance of the seventh day of the week as the Sabbath. We'll turn it. We'll leave it at that for now. Did you hear what just happened? They were dissatisfied with their Christian experience. They thought, how in the world can we sacrifice just a little bit more of ourselves to make our Christian life more meaningful? I've got it! We will put law upon the Word of God. We will give ourselves dietary restrictions as Seventh-day Adventists are prone to do. We will give ourselves a unique day of the week that other Christians do not practice. And we will keep that day, and no one else will keep that day. And we will worship on that day. And we will be the true church. Christian, we could go through, and I think that we will go through, just a little bit about the world around us. Right? For example, now hear me. I am being offensive. Okay? I am being offensive. But hear me out. This does not mean that I am to cause offense to turn a brother or sister or neighbor away from the cross of Christ. I say this to you this morning as a reminder of those, our neighbors, whom we need to love, those whom we need to share the good news about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and coming again with. Basically, all religions, or even those religions that use Christian language, take on a theology of glory. We all say to ourselves that um, if I just have a little bit more knowledge, right, then I can grow out of this stage that I'm in. 
This is what we call Islam. The Muslim faith is one that says you're lacking knowledge and because you lack knowledge, you will not inherit a paradise when you die. And this is why our Muslim brothers and sisters are so good at early childhood education. Because they want people to be able to read the words of the Quran so that they can gain a knowledge that saves them. This is why some church bodies decide to wear special clothing like we find out here on the corner. Or to celebrate a certain day of the week exclusively. Or to eat a certain diet. Or like other cults, to say, there's only 144,000 of us making it through to the end, and so I'm going to go out on the street corner every day of the week and hand out little tracts and Bibles and invite people to my kingdom hall. Because if I do that enough, surely God will be pleased with me. Or perhaps the Church of Latter-day Saints, as they so call themselves, that would say, if you just do enough of these good works, God will be pleased with you. If you just sacrifice enough of yourself, God will be pleased with you. Which is why it's so dangerous then, although not inherently bad, when we start saying things like, here, this week, are six things that you can do to get your life back on track with God. And they're all good things. Read your Bible more. Promise to do this this week. Think this thought more this week. Do this more. Do this. Do this. And the law says it's never done. And the Gospel says... It's already done for you. If we were to continue on in 1 Corinthians, um, I thought about just reading the whole book this morning, but I decided against it. (laughs) Decided against it for the sake of time. We could go through each and every chapter of 1 Corinthians and we could look at what Paul is is portraying and what he's preaching to the church there. Really, in chapters 1 through 4, we have opposition that Paul is facing because he doesn't maybe look like or sound like the other people that are trying to preach to them. But then we get to chapter 5 and we start talking about sexual immorality. And we have lots of good demands that are made on our sexual lives. Things that God expects of us. And yet, what is Paul saying in this chapter? He's saying, you are being selfish with yourself. Christ died on the cross. Set yourself aside as Christ did. Same with lawsuits and same with principles for marriage or foods offered to idols. Here in Corinth, we have uh, people that used to be Jews that are now Christians. 
And there's Gentiles who are falling into sin. And Paul's saying to these Jews who are now Christians, look, I know that you're strong. Make yourself weak for your brothers and your sisters. Bring them back. Same is true in the Lord's Supper. Paul gives the example in chapter 9 of him surrendering his rights. The same is true when it comes to spiritual gifts. Paul is saying these things were given to the church, not to you as an individual. They're not here for you to use and abuse and to hold yourself up above other people. Rather, you should humble yourself with them. You should allow yourself to be humbled knowing that God has been gracious to you and has given you good gifts. Therefore, do not think you are better than your brother or sister in Christ. If we were to continue to walk through the New Testament, I think that we would always see that this pattern of the cross comes comes and this idea of glory is always a future thought. It's always a future thought. Your glory was never meant to happen here and now. So that when we are told to live our best lives now, what we're trying to work towards is something that we weren't meant to have until later. And yet, for many... We could say to ourselves, well, Wade, you know, look, this theology of the cross sounds really good, and yet um, I think maybe if I just humble myself enough, and I keep humbling myself, and I keep making myself lesser than, then, then clearly I'll have done enough for Jesus to notice me, right? This is the other side of it. Where we would say to ourselves, where we would say to ourselves, like perhaps a Buddhist would, that I will deny myself the world, and in that I will find enlightenment, and I will rise up. Or, as Christian monks did for a thousand years, that if I just keep whipping myself and beating myself for my own sin and humbling myself, surely God will be pleased with me, and I will make up for the sufferings that lacked in Christ. See, too often when we hear a list like five things that you could do this week to make your life better with God, what we're automatically hearing is that the cross wasn't enough for us. We're automatically hearing that, okay, you know what? You you were doing pretty good, and then you sinned, and now you just need a little pick-me-up. Really, what you need is these five things, because without these five things, the cross isn't enough for you. Or rather, do this, do this, do this, and then lastly, the cross will make up for all the things that you missed. This is even the danger that I run into on a Sunday morning when I present the law to you, and then suddenly I realize, whoa, I've got to follow it with gospel. And then I say, well, don't worry, because even if you mess up this week, No. 
It's when you mess up this week. Know that your sin is already covered over by Christ's blood, which He shed for you on the cross. Here's the beautiful thing about the theology of the cross. Even though it can sound downcast, even though it can sound like, uh, oh, wow, so you're really just calling me to, to um, die to myself. Well, actually, yeah. Yeah, I am calling you to die to yourself. Right? So, do you remember when we were studying Mark's Gospel? And what does Jesus say? Take up your cross daily and follow me. Christian, what does a cross do to you? It kills you. It doesn't make your back sore. It doesn't necessarily, in the way that we're thinking of, beef you up and make you grow stronger. You know, you take some protein powder and you carry that cross and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. No. (laughs) That cross kills you. You're called to take up that cross and carry it because it's going to kill you. It's going to remind you that you can't always carry the cross that Jesus bared for you. It's going to remind you that you can't carry it your whole life. It's going to remind you that those sins that are weighing you down, Christ already took them and put them on His shoulders and said, those sins are mine now. I am your sin for you. And I am going to be put to death for you. Or Eric and I were talking this week about marriage and you have this wonderful word in Ephesians that, we are, that wives are to submit to their husbands. And it's a beautiful word, uh, right? Because uh, if women, you have to submit. No, it's a beautiful word because it's, it's uh, actually this very great picture of what the role of husband and wife is going to be like. It's a word in the Greek that's used for this battle formation. And the one that submits is the one that holds the big spear behind the person that's holding a shield and a sword, right? And this submitter back here has got their forearm into the back of the person that's holding the sword and the shield. And they're holding you up. They're saying, you can't leave this battle. I'm not going to let you. You're going to keep pushing forward. And do you know who takes the deadly blow each time? The one up front. The one behind isn't taking the deadly blow. In that same way, when wives are called to submit to their husbands, husbands, we are called to die to ourselves in defense of our spouse and our family. We are called to to live this life of the cross and to see our lives as nothing compared to the lives of those around us. Now, we all know that uh, we're not going to do that all the time. We all know that we are selfish. One of the other things that Martin Luther said in something that was called the the Heidelberg Disputation, he had a lot of simple statements that he made, and one of those simple statements was this, that the law, which is the most beneficial the thing that is best for you, doctrine of life, that is to say that if you want something that's going to get you through your day, go to God's law. 
Go to the Proverbs. Read about wisdom. Go to the Ten Commandments. Do or don't do those things depending on what it is. Luther said, this is the most beneficial doctrine of life if you're looking for your life to be simply built up. And yet he also says after approaching Scripture and as we're going to do going into the Ten Commandments in Galatians this year, he also says, and yet, it's a doctrine that doesn't move you any closer to your salvation. It moves you no closer to your justification. So Wade, why in the world would I live this cross-shaped life? Why would I do good things? Why would I die for my spouse? Why would I die for my neighbor or my children or my friend? Why would I not just live for myself and for my own glory? Because if you have been saved by Jesus and you know that your sins are covered over by His blood, Paul also tells us that you have been gifted good works that are laid out before you. And they may benefit you, actually. But they're there for the benefit of your neighbor. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. And God has given you those good works so that you would walk in them. So that you would do them. So that you would look at your day and you would say, maybe there's a thousand good things that I can do. And there's only two of them that I can actually do. And you would, you would do those things. That I would sit down with my children at night when I'm exhausted. And sometimes they get upset with me because I say, yes, kids, I'm going to read to you. And then I'm falling asleep as I'm reading. And they have to say, Dad, it's okay. Just go to sleep. Right? And yet this is a good work that God has laid before me for me to walk in so that I can, I can be a good father. So I can use that law where I'm to love my children and take care of them and raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And I can do that. And I can fail at that. And not only are my children going to say, Dad, it's okay, go to bed. But God's going to say, it's okay. It's okay because your salvation, your justification, your righteousness before me doesn't depend upon how well or how long you're reading to your children at nighttime. The cross and Jesus' death on that cross is what determines that. So Christian, this morning, I would like to simply leave it with this. That the cross alone is our theology. That all of our words and all of our thoughts about God, even though we can look to nature as Romans tells us, and we can see His handiwork all about the one place where we know God is at for us is on that cross. And the one place that we know we can seek and find salvation is on that cross. And the one way that we know that we can open up God's Word and read it and understand what's going on and what God wants to tell us about Himself is through that cross. That cross alone is our salvation. Let me pray for us. 
Father God, we love you. We thank you for being a good father who cares for us. who doesn't leave us alone in this world to try to figure out which parts of ourself we're willing to sacrifice to make you happy with us. Thank you that you do not leave us alone to to try to determine for ourselves what is just and what is right and how we can be made just and right through it. But you give us your word that tells us what is just and what is right. And you give us your word, your son Jesus, who who stands before us and says, you are not just, you are not right, except for through me. Your sins are forgiven. And God, we thank you for that. We thank You, Jesus, that in Your death we die and in Your life we live. And that both in life and in death we know that we are Yours. God, I pray that You will humble each of us today to turn away from ourselves and our sin and to always and ever and only be turning towards you to rest in and to rely upon Jesus' good work done for us on the cross. Lord, strengthen our hearts now. Strengthen our hearts this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening, and remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.